Hello and welcome to People and Profit. I'm Yuka Woye. Coming up. Weakening demand, falling prices and now facing new Western sanctions on Russian gems. So what's happening in the global diamond industry? Geopolitical tensions and climate change are putting Italy's culinary staple at risk. The country's pasta industry continues to face a crisis. A grand Hindu temple in northern India is set to open soon. The multi-billion euro project is slated to boost the local economy, but some are feeling left out of the boom. 2023 has been a tough year for the global diamond industry. After a boom during the pandemic, prices of the precious stone have dropped significantly amid an oversupply, higher interest rates and increasing competition from lab-grown gems. And now the EU and the G7 are set to phase in sanctions on diamonds from Russia, the world's largest producer, to further choke off revenues that fund its war in Ukraine. Starting on New Year's Day, EU members will no longer be allowed to buy diamonds that come directly from Russia unless they're meant for industrial purposes. And in March, the ban will be extended to cover Russian diamonds that are cut and polished elsewhere. Well, for more on what's happening in global diamond trade, we can speak with Paul Zemisky, uh, an independent industry analyst and consultant based in New York. Thank you for joining us, Paul. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Now, the EU uh, has agreed to slap Russia with a long-awaited ban on its diamonds. The phased-in uh, plan is based on an earlier roadmap map set out by the G7. Now, given that Russia exported nearly 4 billion euros worth of diamonds before the war, how much impact do you think uh, this could have and how effective can they be? Yeah, so this has been in the works for going on almost, almost two years now. It's, it's quite a, a difficult thing to implement technically. And then you also have bureaucratic challenges. I mean, the diamond supply chain, it's very global. It spans many different cultures, religions, um, you know, countries with different levels of economic backdrop. Um, so it, it's been quite challenging uh, to, to, to get this done. I think what we saw in, in recent days is um, the, the G7, the EU coming out and saying, here's a framework, here's a timeline of what we want to do. And over, uh, you know, throughout 2024, we're going to phase in. Um, you know, the, these sanctions. Um, and, and, you know, the whole idea is to stop the flow of uh, Russian diamonds into the, the Western consumer market. And if we look at the Western consumer market, that's almost three quarters of total global diamond jewelry demand. Um, and Russia is the largest uh, diamond producer by volume, um, you know, approaching almost 30 uh, percent of, of global diamond production. Um, so the implications here are, are pretty, pretty wide. Now, Europe is actually home to a major global diamond hub, which is Antwerp, the city in Belgium. And Brussels says that it, it, it will use a blockchain-based system to identify the origin of the gems. How could this work? I think the idea is, um, as it passes throughout the supply chain, there'll be a record of that diamond, and then you can trace the origins of the diamond uh, that way. You know, they've also looked into ways to chemically trace the diamond to its origin. Um, and I think that technology is theoretically possible, but um, it's not ready and it probably wouldn't be economic at this point. So I think some, uh, again, some combination of um, trust-based system, um, you know, backed by, you know, say a, a blockchain ledger is probably the way that this is going to look, at least initially. Mm. Now, isn't there already a verification process, though, called the Kimberley process, designed to prevent conflict diamonds uh, from entering global markets? 
Yeah, so that uh, was implemented about 20 years ago. Um, that pertains to rough diamonds in particular. Um, I would say that's a, a broader measure. It uh, tends to be policed by the individual governments themselves. Um, so I think this is going to be a, a more concentrated, uh, uh, you know, a, a more nuanced uh, approach to sanctioning diamonds. Now, all this comes as the industry has been facing a tough time this year. Uh, we've seen gold prices, uh, gold prices surge as people turned to the metal as a safe haven. Why have we not been seeing the same for, for diamonds? So I think you have to take a, you know, a step back. If we just look over the last five years, uh, you know, if we look at global diamond jewelry demand, it, it broke an all-time record in 2021. 2022 was pretty much in line with 2020. And I think now we're going through a hangover. The industry had to aggressively restock uh, following all that uh, you know, record demand. Um, and they started to restock right as the, the, the global economic picture was changing. The stimulus was running out. The service economy was opening back up. You know, the, the central banks around the world are trying to slow economies to, to stem inflation. So um, I, I think it more uh, it has more to do with just, you know, cyclical volatility uh, in the industry. And I think what we're going through right now is, is more of a hangover following those, uh, you know, that, that record period of demand. Now, having said that, though, there's also the rise of synthetic uh, gems, lab-grown uh, diamonds that have been uh, on the rise. And are natural mined diamonds losing their shine, uh, being out-competed uh, com by those new kinds of diamonds? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting development. That's, that's certainly part of the equation here. There, there's multiple moving parts, as there always is. Um, you know, what I would say is, I mean, if we look at man-made diamond, it's a manufactured product. We can theoretically produce as many as we want. Natural diamonds are a non-renewable natural resource. And because of that, the price differential is, is, is quite wide. Um, and it's, it's getting wider. Um, and I think at the end of the day, we're going to see, um, you know, man-made and natural diamonds perceived as, as different products because the price points are so different and because the value proposition is so different. So that is, you know, part of the equation here. But I think once, um, uh, say, the novelty of that product wears out and the product matures, I think it's, you know, most man-made diamonds will be perceived as more lower price fashion jewelry. And then, you know, natural diamonds will be, continue to be perceived as higher priced fine jewelry. Now India, uh, which is already a major diamond processing hub, uh, has just opened a new diamond bourse, uh, which it hopes will uh, boost its standing as well. Are we going to see a shift, uh, another shift in the industry? Yeah, you know, India has been a been a, a leader in the manufacturing, the, say the cutting and, and polishing side of the business. They have, um, you know, world class infrastructure. They have very skilled labor force. Um, they're certainly the leader in what we call the midstream segment of the industry. They're also emerging as one of the, the world's top producers in uh, man-made diamond production. Um, so, um, you know, they're, they're quite invested in this industry. They see it as an uh, important export industry for the country. And I think uh, that, that, you know, that's going to continue into the future. Paul Zimniski, thank you for your insight. My pleasure. Now, the war in Gaza and recent attacks by Houthi rebels in the Red Sea are disrupting global supply chains, already impacted by Russia's war in Ukraine. Combined with the effects of climate change, geopolitical tensions are causing problems for Italy's food processing industry and its undisputed national dish, pasta, is facing a crisis. Our correspondents have sent us this report. For more than 50 years, Enrico Venenti and his family have been growing wheat in Emilia-Romagna, 
one of the most important agricultural regions of Italy. But over the last two years, production costs have skyrocketed. Since the start of the war in Ukraine, we've seen a huge increase in prices for all of our raw materials, particularly for the fertilizers that usually come from Russia. Last year they tripled, also fuel that doubled in price. Enrico, like nearly 10,000 other Durham wheat producers in the region, is worried. In addition to inflation, there are also the repercussions of climate change. Last spring, the area was hit by torrential rainstorms. This morning, he's come for advice from the country's principal farming union. How did last May's floods affect your business? With the continuous rainfall, we lost half of our harvest this year. It's been a terrible year for the wheat sector. I have 25 years of experience. I've never seen a year like it. Never. We've estimated that 20 or 30 percent of farms could stop growing wheat next year. Because of this crisis, several farmers will prefer converting to other crops. A crisis that's also affecting the food processing industry, like this company that produces stuffed pasta. Look, here we have tortellini stuffed with prosciutto and parmesan, products whose prices have increased making this filling cost us 15% more compared to last year. The cost of pasta is higher too. We have seen an overall increase in our production costs due to higher prices of raw materials, transport and energy. The consequences are already visible over the last two years. The average price of pasta has increased by 32% in Italy. To India now and the government's massive infrastructure push in the city of Ayodhya ahead of the planned inauguration of a grand Hindu temple on the 22nd of January is sparking an economic boom. But not everyone is benefiting. Catherine Keddy Clifford has the story. Workers are making the finishing touches to the Ram Temple. Beneath the new building, a site holy for many, which has seen deadly sectarian violence. Officials in Ayodhya expect the new temple complex will bring in about 4.5 million tourists a month, more than the city's population. Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government is spending some 5.5 billion euros on an infrastructure makeover with the new airport, parks and roads. Business will surely increase when the temple opens. There will be an increase in the number of pilgrims and tourists. The cost of land in Ayodhya has soared, quadrupling in many parts of the city. But this boom is not being felt by everyone. Thousands of shops and homes have been partially or fully demolished to make way for the widening of roads. This small business owner will soon lose the shop he has kept for 30 years and won't be able to afford a new one. I don't know what to say. Right now I'm just worried about packing the items in the shop and I'm wondering where I can store these things safely. Some from the city's Muslim community of 540,000 say they feel excluded from the prosperity. The Muslim community is not part of this boom. Even if we open hotels, we won't get any customers. In 1992, a Hindu mob destroyed the mosque that once stood here arguing it had been built on the site of a Hindu temple, sparking riots across the country that left 2,000 people dead, most of them Muslims. In 2019, after decades of legal contests, India's Supreme Court awarded the site to Hindu groups. 
That's all for this edition of People and Profit. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to us on social media. Don't forget, you can also catch up with our previous episodes on our website and listen to them wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for watching.